This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We have talked about the issue of the wage gap on this show several times, whether it be male, female, haves, have-nots, etc. One area not discussed as much is part of a new report from the Center for American Progress. It looks at the wage gap along racial lines between black people and white. Angela Hanks is Director of Workforce Development Policy with the Center for American Progress. Christian Weller is a Senior Fellow in Economics at that organization, and they join me now on the phone to discuss their reporting. Angela, Christian, thank you both. Both. Well, thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Uh, Angela, I guess take us I- into the reporting here and the numbers that you uncovered. Sure. So I can uh, throw the numbers to, to Christian, um, but I think the, the overall message is that um, the black-white wealth gap is massive. And uh, not only is it massive, but you really need targeted policy changes in order to close it. And Christian can dive uh, deeper into the data. Christian? Well, on the data side, I mean, the numbers are just simply shocking, or I would say disgusting. If, you, if I mean, I'm usually a sort of neutral data guy, but when I looked at the numbers, I mean, you find that um, the typical African-American household has a, only about a tenth of the wealth um, uh, that whites have. Um, that is much larger, the gap, than it was before the Great Recession, when sort of the best-case scenario we find in, in the early um, in, in the 1990s is that African-Americans had one-sixth of the, the wealth um, of, of whites. Um, the reason why that matters is we do know that wealth is sort of a means in a heavily market-driven economy like ours, is a means for economic mobility. And if you don't have wealth, um, it makes it much harder to purchase a house, to move to a good neighborhood, to afford <laughs> Uh, college education for your kids to start a business. And we see this all in the data. Homeownership rates are substantially lower for African-Americans, um, and, and business ownerships are much lower. And so you create this vicious cycle, right? You start off with low wealth among African-Americans, and it leads over generations to continuous um, low wealth and, and lack of mobility um, in, Af- in the African-American community and thereby exacerbates sort of, um, wage and income inequalities we already know about. Well, Angela, take us even deeper on that, because I, I was going to ask anyway about the fact that, that this would seemingly be something that does have an, an unfortunate historical trend to it. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we talk about in the report is, you know, we're talking about the current context and really um, the analysis that Christian did. Um, looks at 1989 to 2016, but really this is a problem that's been in the making um, really since the founding of this country. Um, you know, both explicit policies, you know, starting from slavery um, to Jim Crow and implicit policies um, to, you know, less explicit racial segregation in neighborhoods, um, you know, uh, less accessibility to affordable college, all of those things sort of build over time. And so you kind of continue, as Christian said, uh, perpetuating the system over time, and it makes it impossible to actually get a foothold and close that gap. And so, Christian, I mean, you're talking about something that uh, there there are seemingly so many elements to this uh, that are 
that are against African Americans in this country from a financial perspective. Is there an expectation? It doesn't seem like there is any uh, small fix. We're talking about a large scale kind of change of, of process that we need to see here. Right. I mean, we have seen sort of small improvements. I mean, these are data from the Federal Reserve Service Consumer Finances. So from 2013 to 2016, the data kind of gets collected every three years. We saw small improvements, a slight closing in the gap. If that case continued, it would take over 200 years to close the black-white wealth gap. Um, and, and so you're right. Uh, small fix is suggesting that we sort of tinker with the 401k world yeah. to make it a little easier for people to enroll in it. it it's just not the way to go. Um, in, in the report, we lay out a number of solutions. Now, let me talk a little bit about the area that I know most about, which is retirement security. Um, but here, I mean, when you look at sort of the retirement gap, uh, over 60% of whites have a retirement plan, and they, and we're only about 40% of African Americans have either 401k or an IRA. And when you look at the balances in those accounts, um, whites have over $60,000 at the median, and African Americans have about $23,000, so about a third um, in their accounts when they have an account. Um, so the gaps are substantial. So in the retirement world, we can actually be something, um, but it means moving away from the employer-based system. It means we're like we need to, to drastically step up efforts that are already underway at the state level um, to make it easier for people to save outside of the retire uh, outside of the employer-employee relationship for um, their retirement savings. Possibly even mandating that employers contribute, employers, employees contribute substantial amounts of their money for retirement. There's, there's a number of proposals, including a proposal from our colleague David Madlin, the Center for American Progress. But as I said, a number of states are already moving in that direction. California is sort of dipping its toe in there most aggressively, probably, right. than, than other states. But that's sort of the kind of things we list a number of those things um, in the report. In the housing world, I know you're talking later in the show about um, credit denial rates and, and access to credit, which is sort of one way of, of definitely addressing things. Yeah, uh, evening the the leveling the playing field to make it easier for people to get access to mortgages, uh, affordable rental housing. Um, those are kind of like their big scale efforts. They're necessary to close that massive gap. Let me let me ask you this, Christian, because obviously one of the things that we have seen shift in America in the last 10 to 20 years uh, is more 401ks in general across America and less pensions. And, and I'd be interested to know how much the loss of pensions has also potentially been uh, impactful in this area as well. The, the pension issue is a little bit of a complicated issue. Yes, it has. Uh, the loss of pensions uh, is particularly felt among some groups of African-American men who were disproportionately employed in manufacturing. So the loss of pension goes along with the decline of manufacturing employment. Among African-American women, um, the, the pension system, they tend to be disproportionately employed in public sector work. Right. Um, there we haven't really seen the loss of pensions, as we saw in the private sector. There we've seen sort of declining benefit levels. Um, as some pension plans have been underfunded, have, have come under attack in a number of states. Um, so it, it's a little bit harder. It's a little bit less of an issue. But 
to begin with, again, we're talking sort of a minority of, of a small a minority share of African Americans who have defined benefit pensions to begin with. Okay. Um, and that has to do with largely with the way the labor market is segregated and has been historically segregated, and that is just simply uh, a reflection of employment discrimination. Now, Angela, the, 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 the main focus of this is the differences between uh, African Americans and whites here in, in the U.S., but you also touch on the fact that this uh, does follow a similar pattern when you're talking about other nationalities as well, like Hispanics, uh, Native Americans, uh, others here in the U.S. as well. Yes, and so certainly the wealth gap uh, exists uh, between whites and Hispanics, between whites and the AAPI community, um, and parts portions of the AAPI community. Uh, the real reason that we decided to focus on the black-white gap is that, you know, we're talking about kind of the similar uh, challenges and the similar gaps, but ultimately the, the solutions and the barriers are going to be different. So uh, we wanted to kind of separate out to focus on kind of what are the drivers of the black-white wealth gap. And some of the things that we've talked about today are really unique to the black experience in America. Um, That said, you know, I think that we are also interested, and I know Christian's done work on uh, the wealth gap in the AAPI community, and uh, we have plans to focus on the Hispanic community as well. So it's really important to kind of look at all of those groups individually and see what their specific barriers are. Um, And really, when we were thinking about solutions, we really focused on, so what are the key drivers of um, the wealth gap uh, between, between blacks and whites, and then what are the policy solutions to fix those specific problems? So then when you look at, at what the pattern has been and what probably needs to be done from a policy perspective moving forward, Angelo, where where have we been and where do we need to go? Uh, so, I mean, I think the data show that we haven't really been where we need to be in the past. Um, our recommendations uh, focus on a couple of things. So we focus on kind of three broad categories of assets, debts, and income and employment. Um, but within those categories, we have sort of a whole host of recommendations. But sort of the broader theme um, across our recommendations is uh, an equity uh, model called targeted universalism, where essentially you uh, focus on uh, you know policies that will provide a universal good, but you really hone in on the um, populations that are most marginalized and develop policies with them in mind. So... Um, We talked about housing, and I know you'll talk about housing a little bit later in the show. Um, You know, African-Americans are less likely to own a home than whites. Um, But even when African-Americans do own a home, um, they have less home equity, about half as white. So it's not just enough to say, okay, we want to increase home ownership rates. We also have to make sure that neighborhoods aren't segregated and the property values don't go down um, because you're African-American. So really it's about focusing on kind of like what are those key problems that are specific to marginalized communities and then addressing those. And and you also touch on, uh, you mentioned segregation, the fact that there is still a level of segregation within the workforce itself today, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, Christian mentioned occupational segregation, um, but there's also, you know, a large amount of employment discrimination um, against African-American workers. Um, There's a recent study that came out uh, last year that said, that showed that um, the amount of racial discrimination in the labor market has not reduced over the last 25 years. So you would think sort of, you know, as time goes on, you make more progress, you become more equitable as a society. Um, but really, that isn't borne out in the um, data. So it's a little concerning, and it really um, sort of underscores the need for policies that really target employment discrimination, mm-hmm. um, help worker, black workers have more bargaining power, um, in addition to all of these kind of uh, other wealth-building activities um, that are uh, – 
perhaps even more important, like asset building. We are joined on the phone by Angela Hanks and Christian Weller of the Center for American Progress. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Christian, if you go back a few years, obviously uh, a lot of people in America uh, were dealing with the impact of of the Great Recession. How much did that factor into some of this data? Obviously, there's a historical perspective, which which goes much further back. But we're talking about something that happened a decade ago that was uh, unbelievably impactful for for so many Americans. Well, the the Great Recession and the financial crisis that went with it um, hurt African-Americans more um, then it hurt whites um, in a number of factors. The first one is um, African-American unemployment rates went up faster and to much higher levels. They tend to be about twice as large typically um, than the unemployment rates for whites. But there's this phenomenon in, in that we call uh, last hired, first fired, right. um, and that applies in particular to African-Americans and to some degree to Latinos. Um, we saw that in the data, meaning unemployment rates went up higher and faster and sooner for African-Americans than they did. And that meant the loss of income, that meant the loss of retirement benefits where they existed. And it meant that African-Americans had to dip into um, their emergency savings as little as they had uh, more than, than it was the case for whites. The other part that happened in the financial crisis was that it, it sort of um, – it was a financial crisis. It wasn't just a recession. So it was a housing crisis in particular. And because of incredible residential segregation, you don't have sort of a house going under here and a house going under there. You have entire communities going down. Um, and that sort of creates this vicious cycle of unemployment, declining housing losses, bankruptcies, foreclosures, and so on and so forth in entire communities. And you see this in the data. Um what made that particularly bad is the point that um, Angela made that African-Americans typically have lower home equity, which means they have more debt, typically more mortgage debt relative to the value of their houses, which means they're more leveraged for because they get more extensive mortgages and so on and so forth. What that meant is when they lost their jobs, when the property values in their neighborhoods went down, it sort of spiraled out of control pretty quickly. Um, in in uh, the housing crisis, to, in in part because subprime loans were more prevalent among African Americans, they were missold and oversold subprime loans, which has been very well documented. So the, the crisis, the combination of both a recession and the financial crisis, the housing crisis, did a real number on on uh, the wealth of African Americans, and that's why the gap um, in um, between white and black wealth widened and hasn't really recovered. I mean, we're looking at data through 2016 and, and hasn't really recovered since then. Angela, are, are our uh, congressional leaders, our, our leaders in Washington, are they, are they actively looking at this as a problem or, like many things, has this been put to the side? Angela? Uh, my sense is it's been put to the side. I mean, I think it's partly, um, you know, Frankly, Congress sort of operates in crisis mode right now, so um, kind of fixing longstanding institutional problems are not necessarily um, a first-order priority. But really, I mean, as you can see in the report, we lay out a number of solutions, and it's not just about 
you know, addressing employment discrimination or housing discrimination um, or retirement security. All of those things are a part. But really, ultimately, what we need policymakers to do is think about this holistically as a problem that needs to be solved on multiple fronts, because ultimately, you know, we can increase college attainment rates, but if you, uh, which can help, you know, increase earnings, but if you go out into a labor market that discriminates against you, um, then you're not really going to see as much of a benefit from that if you're black versus if you are white. So um, it's really an all of the above strategy. And I think that's something that hasn't really gotten to policymakers. And that's something that we're hoping to convey with this report. Christian? Uh, I agree. I mean, you look at these numbers in in even the the good numbers when when you see African Americans have only one sixth of the wealth of whites prior to Great Recession. Um, there should be this incredible sense of urgency. We have to do something if we want to live up to the promise of equal opportunity for all. And that sense of urgency is missing. And and there are strong voices for it, both from academia, but also from the advocacy side to push this. But I don't think this has really translated into um, policy attention, either at the state level or at the federal level. I think there are some things happening at city levels, at the municipal levels, there are yeah. certainly efforts, um, but this hasn't really bubbled up to the level where federal policymakers feel a sense that this is unfair, this is a, a blight uh, uh, on the record of this great nation, and we need to fix it. Well, Angela, I, I would think, and, and this has been something that I think a lot of people have uh, have thought right now, and you touched on it a second ago, is that with all of what is going on in Washington, D.C. now, and especially in the last several years as well, uh, sometimes these are issues that are better handled at the state level because it, 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 you have more of a closer dive uh, to the to the people that are representing those particular neighborhoods? Certainly. I mean, I think among our recommendations, there are pieces that can be uh, addressed at the state level. Um, ultimately, the federal government has to do something. Um, you know, the federal government is responsible for enforcing, uh, you know, for instance, Title VII, the Civil Rights Act. That's not something that states can do on their own. Right. Um, so I think that there is a role. Um, one of our recommendations around collective bargaining, certainly you can see states um, working on that at the state and local level. So there are, are opportunities to work um, uh, at those levels, but ultimately we need uh, the federal government to take action at some point if we're going to actually address this problem. Christian, one of the other things you touch on the report is debt and, and the type of debt uh, that is being incurred uh, between uh, what what black families are dealing with and what white families are dealing with and the impact that, that the debt that the types of debt that black families are feeling is is quite impactful. Right. And African-Americans tend to be more like they tend to be less likely to have mortgage debt um, because they're less likely to be homeowners. But they're more likely to have installment debt. And when they do they have a little bit more, they're also more likely um, or as likely uh, as whites um, to have credit card debt. Um, but what we didn't look at, but we what we do know is even when you sort of compare what is called installment loans, which is typically car loans or student loans, um, when you compare likes to likes, African-Americans tend to be higher interest rates um, than, than whites do. And that's been longstanding, has been well-documented among academics. Right. Um, so what you end up with is a situation where African-Americans actually owe less wealth, less debt, but relative to their income, they pay about as, as much as, as whites for, for the amount of debt that they have. Um, and that, again, makes it harder um, to, to build wealth because you're constantly running in, in place 
to just pay your bills. And this, we, we do have a fairly segregated credit market that sort of sells more costly products, not yeah. just subprime loans, but subprime car loans, subprime mortgages, subprime higher interest rate credit cards, uh, more punitive credit cards um, to communities of color, especially to African-Americans. Well, I, I guess, Angela, one of the other questions to ask is, and I mentioned about the, the government side of this, uh, but is this an issue that potentially could also be looked at by the by the private sector, by the corporations as well? I mean, obviously, they're uh, in many cases worried about the bottom line, but I would think that there are probably instances out there uh, of individuals that would like to try and see if this is something that can be tackled and eliminated. Um, I think that's certainly uh, possible. I mean, our recommendations are mostly geared toward the public sector. Right. Um, but um, but certainly, I mean, things like employment discrimination is, you know, that's something that companies can easily address on their own um, by hiring black workers. Um, but uh, but I really think that it's, it's about, um, you know, altering systems uh, ultimately. And, and that means, you know, private sector comes along, of course, but really we've got to get public institutions to change. Christian, going back to the 401k question for a second, uh, how do we try and tackle that part of it because of the fact that that 401ks are seen as the primary way for Americans uh, to to save for retirement income these days? Well, we have two problems with the 401k world. One is that employers don't offer them often to their employees, um, only about what one in two workers has even access um, to a 401k plan, and it's even less for, for African-Americans. Um, and then once an employer offers a plan, um, people don't necessarily participate. We sort of have some solutions to close that gap, um, that once your employer offers a plan uh, to make it easier, to make it more attractive for people to participate in that, um, but there, you're, you're really addressing only a small fraction of the problem. I mean, it's usually called auto-enrollment, which means you work for an employer that offers 401k, and you're automatically enrolled in that right. plan rather than sort of signing up for it. That closes, that takes part of a little bit of the problem. Um, but the bigger challenge is getting employers to offer that plan. And um, we are a unique retirement system in the sense that this add-on, this employment-based retirement system, 401k, is entirely voluntary um, on the part of employers. And generally, a number of retirement experts are moving towards some sort of mandate. Um, you could either mandate that the employer offers something, like a retirement plan at work, or at a minimum, you mandate that the employer automatically enrolls all employees into what's called um, payroll deduction into an individual retirement account and IRA. The employer wouldn't have to really do anything uh, other than enrolling them and then making sure the money that they take out of the employee's paycheck goes into this IRA. This the, this process is called auto IRAs. Um, it was developed by a researcher at the Heritage Foundation and uh, somebody at Brookings uh, a little over a decade ago. Um, President Obama had proposed it at the federal level. It didn't go anywhere. So now states are moving in that direction. Again, it would be a mandate that the employer, just, if, if the employer doesn't offer a retirement plan, that the employer at least offers payroll deduction, makes it basically take some money out of the employee's check, sends it to a retirement account. The employee can opt out. The employee can say, like, I don't want this. Um, but 
that's sort of like at a minimum that's the first step to close that gap um like we've tried to be honest we've tried pretty much everything under the policy world to encourage employers to offer more 401ks and yeah. it hasn't happened in the last 30 years so I think most people are sort of at that point where like, okay, we've tried this. Let's just mandate something. Angela, doesn't this become even more important now, especially with the reporting and, and the knowledge of the fact that there are issues with Social Security? And if they are not addressed, we're looking at the potential significant change of what Social Security is in about, you know, 15 to 20 years. Uh, I can I can throw that to Christian, but certainly one of the um, – recommendations in our report is to make sure to protect Social Security, again, because African Americans are less likely to have retirement savings. Christian? Well, I mean, when it comes to Social Security, it's really just a matter of political will. I mean, there's sort of like, yes, rising costs um, associated with the retirement of the baby boomers. But uh, after 2033, the cost of Social Security are around 6%, a little under 6% of gross domestic product for the foreseeable future. They're not rising anymore. Um, so it's just a matter of political will um, to to pay for the like to honor the promises we made to the baby boomers that they pay more into the system and we make sure they have a secure retirement and then uh, figuring out how how do we pay for these basic benefits in the long term future again they're not they're not rising costs right um, I would say what Angela just repeat what Angela says like it's key to re- to improve to maintaining social security it's really just a basic benefit and it's not just a retirement benefit right you got to remember about a third of the program is survivorship and disability benefits and, um, and disability instances are much larger much more widespread among african americans so tinkering with social security Overall, I mean, you can't really separate out retirement from disability from survivorship benefits. Right. Um, that means ultimately, if you tinker with it, you cut benefits, you're hurting um, those the most who are the most relying on Social Security and its benefits is offering. Great having you both with us. Uh, excellent work by you both. Uh, thank you, Angela. Thank you, Christian. Well, thank you very much for having For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.